Hi, this is Pastor Curtis. I want to thank you for checking out the Family Church Podcast. I hope it encourages you and inspires you to take your next step of faith. You can find out more about how to do that at our website, familychurch.xyz. And if you know a friend who needs to hear this message, please forward it on to them. I hope you enjoy the message. Good morning, Baldwin City. How's everyone doing? So um, I always uh, leave Sunday mornings earlier than my wife, because uh, I get over to the church a little bit early, getting ready for the services. And so uh, as I was going out, she, um, she says, well, how come, you're, how come you're dressed all in black? I said, well, I read an article once that said, when you wear black, it makes you look thinner. So she did one of these numbers. She Got anything any blacker? Not really. She did. She did not do that. But she has, she has cast doubt on my wardrobe on occasion. Uh, you, you ever notice that, guys? How, how you know? And they they won't just come out and say, "Be honest." I wouldn't be caught dead in that at a flea market. No, they they say, "You, you sure you're heading out the door? Are you wearing that?" No, I'm just going to check the mail and then I'm going to come back and change into something else, right? You ever notice that? By the way, this is, this is my wife. Those of you that don't know, this is my wife. She didn't know I was going to do this. Honey, would you stand so everyone can see? This is my wife. Uh, been married 45 years this summer. And uh, all I got to say is they that wait upon the Lord. Amen. All right. Welcome everyone to New Series Sunday. If you don't know what a series is, it's when our leadership team picks a topic to preach on, and then we preach on it till you get tired of hearing about it or till we run out of material, whichever comes first. Uh, that's not entirely true. But the reason that we teach in, in seri- a series of message, messages is because it helps us do our job better, which is proclaiming God's word, the whole counsel of God to you. But it also helps you do your job better, which is to be doers of the word, not just hearers only. So we've, we found that when we do series of teachings, it gives you an opportunity to, to embrace these truths and hopefully walk in them and hopefully change your life. Uh, this new series that we're beginning this morning is titled Family Church DNA. And the series is built around four different core values that, that we as a church um, hold and embrace dearly. So over the next four weeks... We're going to be looking at these four things because as soon as you heard me say four weeks, all you type A personalities were like, what are they? What are they? What are the next four, right? So here, here all you type A's, here, here's what we got going on. Today, we're going to be talking about loving God. Next week, Kyle's going to be talking about loving people. In two weeks, I'm going to be talking about next steps and, and our growth track and what that looks like. And then in four weeks, Kyle's going to conclude the series uh, with a message on choosing joy. So that's where we're going. Uh, love God. How many of you love God? Got any people that love God? Yeah, yeah that's, that sounds so simple, right? Simple enough. The problem, the problem with talking about love today is it has so many different meanings. And, and honestly, the English language doesn't do, any, do, any, do us any favors since you think about this. We use the same word to describe our love for God that we do our love for Taco Tuesday. Or we use, you know, we talk about how we love God, but we also talk about how we love the chiefs. Right? Anyone love the Chiefs in here? Right? Yeah. So, 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 I mean, what, so what does that look like? 
What does that look like? Because I would hope that our affection for God is greater than our fondness for a certain type of food or even uh, our fondness for a particular sports team, even if that sports team is the first to win back-to-back Lombardi trophies in 20 years. Can I hear a good amen for that? All right, so here's how the Apostle Paul, or excuse me, the Apostle John defined love. We're gonna start here and then we're gonna look at a story where Jesus did a, a, made a field trip with his disciples and kind of expounded on this. 1 John 4, verse 7. This is the Living Bible, so it's a paraphrase. Dear friends, let us practice loving each other, for love comes from God, and those who are loving and kind show that they are the children of God and that they are getting to know him better. That's a huge statement because it shows us that one of the expectations of loving God is growing and maturing in our relationship with him. Verses 9 and 10, God showed how much he loved us by sending his only son into this wicked world to bring us eternal life through his death in this act. In this act, we see what real love is. It's not our love for God, but his love for us when he sent his son to pay for our sins. So please note that John underscores two things about loving God. First, our love for God should not be static. It should always be moving or growing, as it were, because he says, get to know him better. And the second thing about love that John tells us here is that our love for God is best evidenced in acts, things that we do. He says, in this act, we see what real love is. In this act, what act? What act is it, is it talking about there? What are you talking about, John? Let, let's let Jesus tell us in John 15, 13, what that act is. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friend. And then within hours, he backed that statement up by dying on the cross for you and and for me. Which leads us to our big idea for this morning's message. Here's the big idea. In a single act, Jesus took a word that for hundreds of years had always been understood as a noun, and he made it a verb in that single act. He took a word that had always been understood as a noun and he converted it to a verb, something that we do. In the upper room while eating his last meal with his disciples, just hours before being crucified, Jesus asked Peter, do you love me, Peter? Remember that story? He asked him three times, do you love me, Peter? Do you love me, Peter? And then finally, you know, Peter's getting a little frustrated. Well, Lord, you you know that I love you. And you remember Jesus' response to him, then feed my sheep. Love is something we do. It is something that we do. So, first important point about loving God is our love for God should be seen in our acts of service towards others. But, but since love is a term of endearment, then it's always going to be linked to something or someone, right? Your love for, your affection for someone is based on who that person is to you. And, and this is a huge part of loving God that the disciples apparently didn't understand. So to help them understand, Jesus took them on a field trip one day to a place called Caesarea Philippi. It's found in Mark chapter 8. We're going to pick up at verse 27. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. Now, Caesarea Philippi is in the northeastern region of Israel. If you were to look on a, on a map, it's about, uh, it's about 70 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. It's about 30 miles northeast of Jesus' hometown of Nazareth. Um, At that time in history, it was a very thriving city, a very prosperous city that was notorious for idolatry and hedonistic living. So think think Las Vegas, think Bourbon Street in New Orleans during Mardi Gras. It was was located at 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 the foot of Mount Hermon. 
which is a very lush area of the desert there. And this, this city was dominated by immoral activities and pagan worship. I've never been there, but when we were serving as youth pastors for a few years, uh, years ago, the pastor that we were working with took two trips to the Holy Land. And both times when he came back, he, was, he told me about Caesarea Philippi. And he said, it's really interesting because you, you take the Holy Land tour and you go and see all these villages, you know, that Jesus went to, Cana, you know, and all that. And he said, and then one day we go up to Caesarea Philippi and he said, man, it's a completely, it's, it's, it's eerie. He said, it's, it's surreal. Because no one hardly lives there anymore. And you walk down the, what's left of the streets, and he said there's these you know, altars that are you know, half-constructed and idols uh, from, from back then. He said it's kind of creepy feeling when you walk through there. And there's a, and th- man, think about this. Uh, during the time of Jesus, when Jesus made these comments, the Jews considered Caesarea Philippi to be the literal gates of hell. That's right. They considered Caesarea Philippi to be the gates of hell, which begs, and there, there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's actually a cave, there's a cave at the, at the foot of Mount Hermon, and inside the cave, there's an inscription on the wall that says, in, in, in Greek, gates of hell. So, so picture this. Why, why would Jesus take his guys, his disciples, on a field trip to, to a place like Caesarea Philippi. That'd be like taking them, you know, taking them someone to, you know, the red light district of Bourbon Street or, or Las Vegas. What, you know, what, what, what's that all about? Why would Jesus do such a thing? Well, he would do such a thing because he's about to ask them a very important question. Recognizing the magnitude of this question, right? He wants to make sure that they, they have proper context for this question that he's about to, to, to ask them. So Jesus takes his disciples, and he knows, he knows that what's weighing in the balance here. Their answer to this question is, is, is huge. This is huge. So he takes them to Caesarea Philippi, and it's, it's as if Jesus is kind of showing, giving them context. Okay, here, over here, you've got, this is what the world strives for. Everything you would want in the world, anything you could buy is right over here. And he's trying to give them some context. He took them to a place that in the world's eyes was the epitome of fun and pleasure, And that's Jesus' way of saying, all right, here, here's what the world has to offer. And he was bringing them to this decision point, not in church, not in a synagogue, but out in the context of the world. See, it's easy to to say, well, yeah, you know, I love Jesus when you're in church, or yeah, but but not so much when you're out in the world, when you're caught up in, in the mess of the world. Anyone can make a decision to love God and follow Jesus in church when you're surrounded by other people who are worshiping God, who have a great praise band and so forth. But Jesus didn't take him to a synagogue or church. He took him to an ungodly pagan city where for the right price, you could do almost anything, anytime you wanted, wherever you wanted. And standing near the pagan temples of Caesarea Philippi, Jesus asked his disciples this question, and it's the question I want to ask you this morning. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? Who do people say I am? Who do you say Jesus is? See, that's the most important question you'll ever answer because, see, you can be right in every other area of your beliefs, your convictions, your theology, your worldview. You can be right in all those areas, but if you're wrong on Jesus Christ, you're wrong enough to lose your soul for eternity. So this is a huge question, 
a huge question. Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say I am? And they came back with three answers. Uh, verse 29, they replied, some say John the Baptist. Some, some say that you're John the Baptist reincarnated because remember, this would have been about just within weeks after John the Baptist had been beheaded. And if you grew up in church, you kind of know that story, how Herod had John the Baptist beheaded. So that, that wasn't too far in the past. So they said, well, some people say that you're John the Baptist reincarnated. Others say that you're Elijah. Now the Jews thought that the prophet Elijah would make an appearance. Why? Because 2 Kings 2 tells us that when Elijah went to heaven, he was taken up in a chariot and horses of fire. So in other words, they believe that he never did really die. So they believe that Elijah was going to come back as part of the sign of the coming of the return of Messiah. So some people think you're John the Baptist uh, reincarnated. Some think you're uh, the prophet Elijah. And others think you're just one of the prophets. In other words, you're, just, you're one of the others in a long line of prophets that God has sent over the years. But then Jesus makes it personal. And this is the question I want to ask you. But what about you, he asked. What about you? Who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Now, at this point in, in, in the narrative, Matthew, who was also there, because Matthew uh, recorded this event as well, and Matthew kind of fills us in uh, with, with some information that, that Mark left out. So at this point in the narrative, I want to switch over to Matthew to just read a couple of verses. Peter says, who do you say I am? And Peter says, you are the Messiah. At that point, Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And then I picture Jesus pointing over to that cave where that inscription on the wall is. I picture Jesus pointing over there and saying, and I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell... I see him pointing over there. And the gates of hell aren't going to prevail against this movement that I'm starting. Now, even though Peter gave the correct answer, he really didn't have the correct understanding because Messiah in Peter's mind meant the same thing it meant in every Jew's mind at that time. When, when Peter called Jesus Messiah, he was thinking in terms of a military or political leader. Having lived under Roman rule for, for so long, Jews always viewed the Messiah as a political leader, someone who would come in and overthrow Rome and set up their kingdom so they could be in charge. So Jesus corrects that false understanding, that false view of him down in verse 31, Mark 8, 31. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. Now, most Bible scholars believe that Mark was the earliest of the four gospels written, which means this was probably the very first time Jesus mentioned his death and resurrection. So you really have to wonder, what were the disciples thinking at this point? First, Jesus takes them on this field trip to the gates of hell. Then he starts telling them how he's going to suffer and be crucified and then rise from the dead. He knew this was going to be a difficult conversation because look at what he says next in verse 32 of Mark 8. He spoke plainly about this. In other words, he knew that this was a paradigm shift for their mind, right? He knew that this was going to be difficult. He wanted to make sure that they understood clearly that he was a king, but he wasn't a military or political king. He was a suffering king. Well, that's too much for Peter to process. He starts blowing a fuse. So at, at some point, he pulls Jesus aside to, to correct him, if you can imagine that correcting the Son of God, right? 
really, man, I'll tell you what, Peter, you, you got it going on there if you're going to correct the Son of God. So Jesus is saying this stuff. Peter pulls him aside and began to rebuke him. Notice it says Peter began to rebuke him, right? He began to rebuke him. It apparently didn't last very long because while Peter's trying to rebuke him, Jesus turns the tables and starts rebuking Peter in verse 33. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. Wow. Man, think of the implications of that. Jesus rebuked, called out one of his own followers. He tells Peter, you're speaking from a demonic mindset right now. What's a demonic mindset? Jesus explains it here. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. In other words, Jesus tells Peter, look, you think loving me, uh, you, you think loving me is living your life that, the way you want, and, and then, uh, then you, know, you expect me to bless it, and then when this is life is over, uh, have a place for you in heaven. He says, but that's, that's not what it is. That's not what, that's not what loving God is. Because loving God includes being concerned about the things that he's concerned about. Verse 34, then he called the crowd to come to him along with his disciples. So apparently up until now, he was kind of just talking with his disciples. But there comes a point where he says, hey, everyone come in. Everyone come in. Because he always had a crowd around him. So at this point, he says, hey, everyone come in here. All the crowd come in here. And this is what he says to him, to them. He said, whoever wants to be my disciple, in other words, the best way to show your love and commitment to me and at this point, you would have thought that he would have said, whoever wants to be my disciple must come to church every Sunday. Whoever wants to be my disciple must fill out a connect card and sign up for a growth group. Whoever wants to be my disciple must give 10% every Sunday. But that's not what he says. Jesus says, no, 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 no. It, it, it's much deeper than that. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. Now, we, we, we hear that word, you know, that phrase, take up our cross. And we think of a cross in terms of a piece of art hanging on the wall or a piece of jewelry, you know, because we, we see crosses, you know, all around us. But, but, but that's not how they viewed crosses back then. That wasn't the case back then. When Jesus made this statement about taking up your cross, the cross wasn't a piece of art. It wasn't jewelry. It was the symbol of death and execution, Wearing a cross at that time would have been like wearing a hangman's noose or an electric chair around your neck. Really? I mean, that's what it was symbolic of death and execution. Verse 35, Mark 8. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. If, if the idea of dying to yourself is too much, if, you, if you've got plans that don't include denying yourself and taking up your cross and following Jesus, if you have hopes and dreams that don't include dying to yourself, you need to understand you're going to lose it anyway. You're going to lose it anyway. You're still going to die. Last I checked, the odds of you dying are still one out of one. Right? Still one out of one. Right? Aren't you glad you came to church today? Hear the preacher tell you you're going to die. You're going to die someday. Right? Doctors die. People who jog die. People who work out die. People who eat healthy organic food die. They just die with a nasty taste in their mouth. Jesus says, you're not seeing the large picture of what's really going on. Because if you really knew what was going on, you'd see that these things that you think will save you, they're not going to save you. You're going to die anyway. 
If you understood that, you would think and act differently. But whoever, then he says, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel, whoever understands God's upside down kingdom and how losing is really winning and how those at the back are gonna come to the front, ultimately those people will be the winners or in Jesus' words, they will save it. Save it. They'll be the ones who save their marriage. They'll be the ones who save their family. They'll be the ones that save their life, that save their joy, save their happiness. The thing is, and this is the hard part, the thing is we won't know until we cross that threshold. We won't know until we cross that threshold that we're not going to hate it. We're going to love it. We're going to love it. Mark 8, 36 and 37. What good is it? Then he says this. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and lose their soul? What if you really did get all these things? Let's say that you got all these things. Everything that this world has to offer. What if you got all the cars you wanted, all the houses you wanted, got to go on all the vacations that you wanted to go on, went to Vegas, got comped with house money? What if you got all those things that you thought would make you happy and content? What if you were able to achieve that, but when you got to heaven, realized that you had invested everything, your time, your resources in this life, and had nothing waiting for you when you got to heaven? By the way, Every single one of you sitting in here, you, you've thought that. You have thought that. If you've ever been to a funeral, you have thought this way. When you're at a funeral, you're not thinking, oh my gosh, I hope they have plenty of money in the bank. Oh my gosh, I hope they had their mortgage paid off. No, 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 no. What are you thinking? You're thinking, oh my gosh, I hope, I hope they had their affairs with God. You know, isn't that what you're thinking? Then Jesus says this. When you do cross that threshold into eternity, when you pass from this physical, temporal realm into the spiritual, invisible realm, and realize that you weren't really loving God, that you really didn't put the time and effort into your relationship with God, that you should have, Jesus says, or what can anyone, or what would anyone give in exchange for their soul? Let me answer that for you. The answer is everything. You would give everything when you cross that threshold from this temporal realm into the invisible eternal realm and realize, oops, I didn't, I didn't do that right, right? I'd give everything. You'd give everything if you could go back and do it again. And Jesus concludes his comments with this statement. If anyone is ashamed of me, in my words, in other words, if this bothers you, if this bothers you, he calls you an adulterer and you don't really love me. In this adulterous and sinful generation, you know what an adulterer is? It's someone who's married but is in love with someone else. Ouch. Yeah, that's what Jesus called us. The Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. So part of my job as a pastor is to keep this from happening to you. I don't want you to have regrets about the things you could have or should have done in this life in preparation for the next. Because this life, this life is preparation for the next life. And the best way to ensure that we won't have regrets is if we learn to love God well. And when you look at the life and ministry of Jesus, you'll see that he always met people where they were. Because people viewed him differently. Remember, he said, who do people say they am? Well, some say you're John the Baptist. Some think you're Elijah. Some think you're... So we know that everyone kind of was at a different level when it came to Jesus. So I want to conclude this message by going over four different categories or four levels of people's understanding and love for God. 
And as we go over these, my goal is to help you discover what level you're currently at, but also help you move to that next level as you grow in your love for God. Now, the first level is um, the crowd, the crowd. And, and, and this, this is characterized by the phrase, come and see, come and see. The beginning place for loving God is just first coming to know him, getting to know him, right? And the message to the crowd was simply, come and see. See, at this level, we're not, t- we're not telling you to give. We're not asking anything of you. We're not telling you to read your Bible. We're not telling you that you even need to believe everything that we believe. We're just asking you, hey, come check us out. C- c- come and see. David the psalmist said in Psalm 34, 8, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Oh, taste and see. In John chapter 1, Jesus is calling some of his disciples to follow him. One of the guys he calls is a guy by the name of Philip. So then Philip, in his excitement, he goes and tells a friend of his, Nathaniel. But Nathaniel's a little bit skeptical. He said, what? He's from Nazareth. And remember, Nathaniel's response, can anything good come from Nazareth? Right? But notice, Philip doesn't argue with him. He doesn't try to convince him. He simply says, just come and see. I don't, I don't have a, I don't know, but just, just come and see. Just come and see, said Philip. Jesus almost always had a crowd following him. And this is clear when you read any of the gospel accounts of his life. There was always a crowd following Jesus. And by the way, the majority, early on, the majority of those people following Jesus, they weren't believers. They didn't believe he was the Messiah. Some of them did, but not all of them. In fact, like I said, early on, many of them didn't. Well, why were they following him then? Because they were getting their bellies full and they were getting their needs met. Really? Remember, they, they get hungry. Oh, you're hungry? Bam! And there's a fish sandwich for you and then you get a fish sandwich and you get a fish sandwich, right? If they were hurt, he healed them. That's why they were following him because he was meeting their needs. But here's the point. When it came to this first level of loving God, when it comes to the crowd, Jesus is patient. He's patient. If you're in the crowd, Jesus is just asking, just, just come and see. Just, just, just come and see, which is exactly what we do here at Family Church. It, it, we create certain environments that will give you the opportunity to just come and see. Come and get to know the Lord and hopefully grow in your relationship with him. That's why we do things like nights of worship. That's why we do things like our at the movie series that we do every year. It's like, that's why we're going to do five Easter services here in a few weeks. We're going to do things that are designed to attract a crowd. And again, of the crowd, we're not asking anything of the crowd. We're just asking, just, just come and see. Just, just, just come check it out. So our love for God is sparked at the come and see level. But since loving God isn't static, right? We've already determined that. At some point, we need to grow to the next level, the next act of love, which is when we move from the crowd to being part of the family. And this is the come join us. So we move from the crowd, come and see, to the family. Come and join us. Now, this is the level of love where God begins to require something of us. This level has benefits, but it also has responsibilities. Just just like think about your own family. You know, when you're in a family, there's benefits, but there's responsibilities as well. And there are actually two parts when talking about joining the family of God. Because you have the family of God at large, capital C, right? The church, that, 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 that's the body of Christ around the world. Now, that's the most important family you, that you need to make sure that you're a part of. When you become a Jesus follower, you're not part of a group or organization. You're a child of God. John 1, verse 12, but to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God or or the right to join the family of God. Some of you need to leave the crowd. Some of you in the crowd, you need to leave the crowd and join the family. Not not family church, 
I mean, that, that's, that, that would be the goal. We'd love for you. But first and foremost, you need to join the church, capital C. And then after you come to join the church, yeah, we would invite you to come join us here locally at, at, at Family Church. Now, we're not the only church family. There are many others. There's many other good churches. In fact, I'm good friends with Pete Goins at New Life Assembly here in, in, in Baldwin. I'm good friends with Chris Heinzelman at, at Open Table in, in Wellsville. We've had this conversation. We know, we know that there are people, there are people that go here that wouldn't go to their churches. There are people that go to their churches that wouldn't come here, but that's okay. The, the goal is to just find a church, find a family where you feel like you can fit in and grow in your love. So the beginning point for loving God is when you first come and see. Then having seen or tasted that the Lord is good, then the next step or act of love is, is, is joining the family or the family of God or the church. Then at that point, then you join the local church. And then that growth is seen as you serve others the way that you were served when you made your way through the crowd into the family of God. Again, the, the way this looks here at Family Church is by taking the next class. And we're going to be offering that next class next Sunday at 930 here in Baldwin. So uh, that, that's something I want you to pray about. If you haven't taken the next class, you're still, you know, maybe I, I, we understand you're still kind of checking us out, kicking the tires. That's okay. But if you think God might be leading you here, sign up for that next class. They'll, they'll, they'll tell you how to do it. I think it's going to be up on the screen at the end of the message, how to sign up for the next class next Sunday. So then after taking that class, getting to find out more about us and what we're about. If you still want to join with us, then we'll show you your next steps, which leads to the next act of loving God. Our love for God begins at come and see, then it grows to come and join, and then it grows to come and grow. Come and grow. This is the disciple part of, of love. The, the, because the goal isn't just to belong. The goal is to grow and mature in your love and in, and in your walk with God. Again, the expectation is that we would be growing in our love for God. John 15, 8. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Now, look, you know this fruit doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen overnight. Again, the expectation is that we'll grow in our love for God, but there's no shortcuts to spiritual growth. There's no shortcuts to spiritual maturity. It happens as we walk with him day by day, trusting him, reading his word, spending time with him, and serving his people. So question, are you growing? Are you growing? Is your love, let me put it this way, is your love for God greater today than it was the day that you invited him into your life and made him your Lord and Savior? Because if it hasn't, then I, you need to be praying about that. You need to be praying about that. The goal of Christianity isn't just to get you to heaven. The goal of Christianity is to help you grow in your love for God and mature in your faith. When I first met Sue, we fell in love pretty fast. From the time we first met till our wedding day was a little over six months. How stupid were we? Six months, right? But, you know, she will tell you, I will tell you that, yeah, we have grown in our love for each other. There's a depth there that wasn't there before. You know how this works. And that should translate into our relationship with God as well, right? I know that I've, I've grown in a lot of areas. You know, it's, you know, 45 years, almost 45 years of marriage. You know, I, I can almost dress myself now. I know how to empty the dishwasher and those kind of things. But seriously, you know what I'm talking There should be some depth in your love relationship that wasn't there when you first met your spouse. And that's the way that it should be. So what does loving God look like? If you're in the crowd, it looks like joining the family. 
If you're in the family, it looks like becoming a disciple. If you're going as a disciple, it looks like this next stage, which is come and serve. Come and serve. This is like you do the minister. They call it the minister. The Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians 4, that my job, most people don't realize, so most people think that the, you know, the preacher should you know, be doing all the ministry. No, 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 no. According to the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 4, my job as the pastor is to equip you, the saints, he calls you saints, believe it or not, turn to the person next to you and say, hello, saint. Go ahead, say hello, saint. The Bible calls you saints. My job is to equip you, the saints, to do the work of the ministry. So who does the work of the ministry? You guys do. Now, you don't have to go to seminary. You don't have to get a Bible degree. But you are to be doing the work of the ministry. I've never crunched the numbers, but my guess is somewhere between one-third and one-half of our congregation serve on one of our dream teams. Those folks who have... These are, these are people who have fallen so in love with Jesus, so in love with God, that sometimes they attend two services every Sunday. Yeah, two services. Imagine that. They worship at one, and then they serve in the other. They stand outside and greet you when you walk up. They pour your coffee. They teach your kids. They change your baby's diapers. They, they run the cameras. They, they sing up on the stage. They play instruments. They set up classrooms across the hall. They tear them down afterwards, after the service. And they're going to do the same thing again next week and the week after that and the week after that and the week after that. Why do these people do this? Why do they attend two services? Because of their love for God. That's why. Now, one last thing, before you can do any of those four things, before you can do that, there's another step that you need to take. And I have to warn you, this is a tough one. But the only way that you'll be able to come and see, come and join, come and grow, and come and serve is when you come and die. Come and die. The ultimate act of love is being willing to lay down your habits, your hurts, your hangups, your preferences, and live for something greater than you. Live your life for Jesus. Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Learning to love God is learning to embrace this upside-down kingdom truth that he taught over and over and over again during his three and a half years of ministry. Matthew 16.25, if you try to hang on to your life, you'll lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you'll save it. And as scary as that sounds, because it is, that's, that's pretty scary sounding. As scary as that sounds, when we learn to love God the way that he told us to love him, by laying down our life, trust me, you're going you're gonna to love the reward on the other side. So how do we love God? If you're outside the crowd, you need to come and see. If you're in the crowd, you need to come and join. If you're in the family, you need to come and grow. And the way that we come and grow is by serving others. But the only way that we can do any of these is when we learn to die, die to our desires, die to our preferences for the benefit of someone else, just like Jesus did for us. Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrated, showed us his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, while we're still sinners, don't miss this. There was no guarantee. He didn't wait for us to get our lives straightened out. Okay, well, no, no, no. There was, he took all the risk here. While you were still sinners, Christ died for you. Bow your heads, let me pray for you. Lord, 
just like you brought your disciples to a place of decision that day at Caesarea Philippi, I brought your people to a decision point today, a decision to move from the crowd to the family or from the family to the place of growing and serving and, and to that ultimate act of love that you demonstrated so powerfully by laying down your life for us. Don't let us be content where we're at, Lord. As we love you by serving your people, feeding your sheep, increase our love for you. Increase our love for you. And if you're here today and you're still in the crowd, you're not following Jesus but would like to, it would be my honor to lead you in a prayer where you can come to know your heavenly Father in a personal and profound way. It's the easiest thing that you'll ever do, but it'll cost you everything. It'll cost you your life. The good news is you surrender your life to him and he gives you his life in return. So if that's you, I would just ask you to follow this prayer. I'll lead you in the prayer. You just need to believe it in your heart. Just say, Jesus, I know that my life is broken. It's messed up. I can't fix it because I've tried. So I'm asking you to forgive me of my sins. And right now, like Peter, I confess that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, who died for me and rose from the dead for me. And I invite you, your Holy Spirit, to come live inside of me and help me begin living my life for you and begin growing in my love for you and your people. In Jesus' name, amen.